Now, the greatest difficulty in letting newborn infants develop their natural morality is the fact that armoring sets in so very early, i.e. soon after birth. With the first armor blocking the infant's self-regulatory powers begin to wane. They become steadily weaker as the armoring spreads over the whole organism and they must be replaced by compulsive moral principles if the child is to exist and survive in its given environment. Thus, the compulsive regulation of infants is not the result of bad intentions or maliciousness on the part of educators or parents. It is an awful necessity, an emergency measure. Self-regulation cannot be conceived of as something to be implanted in the child or something that can be taught. It can only grow of its own accord. What the educator and the parents can do is protect this naturally occurring self-regulation from birth onward. Welcome to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. The Journal of Ergonomy is now on Substack. Check out the link in the show notes to subscribe. Select articles from the journal will be available free of charge. Each month, we feature a narrated article, patient interview, case presentation, or discussion with one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We're interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at ergonomy.org. The best way to help the American College of Ergonomy spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd appreciate you leaving a rating and review. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. If you're interested in training with the ACO, you can learn more about medical orgone therapy or the social ergonomy training programs. You can connect with us and learn more at ergonomy.org. This episode features a narration of the article, Problems of Childhood Self-Regulation in an Age of Permissiveness by Peter A. Christ, MD, reprinted in the Journal of Ergonomy, Volume 46, Number 2. Originally published in Volume 33 in 1999, Dr. Christ's article is perhaps even more applicable today as parenting has become increasingly permissive in today's anti-authority social environment. We hope you share this important information with parents and educators so that those responsible for childcare can have a functional perspective, free of both moralism and an anything-goes permissive approach. Problems of Childhood Self-Regulation in an Age of Permissiveness by Peter Christ, M.D. Adapted from a presentation of the same title given at the 1998 ACO Annual Conference on Infants and Children, September 27, 1998. This article was originally published in the Journal of Organomy in Volume 33, Issues 1 and 2, 1999. Raising healthy children is mankind's most crucial task. There is no more important use for organomic knowledge. Our children must ultimately take responsibility for the tremendous problems, man-made and otherwise, facing our planet. We are living in an age of social breakdown in which people throughout society, from the lowest levels to our political leaders, fail to take responsibility for their own lives and their actions. Within families, we see the old-fashioned, neurotic, authoritarian family structure breaking down and giving way to a new neurotic pattern, the permissive family structure. Increasingly, we see bratty, whiny children 
whose parents fail to stand up to them and instead indulge their every whim or demand. We also see increasing numbers of impulsive, unfocused children who cannot concentrate and maintain their attention long enough for sustained work or accomplishment. We have increasing numbers of young people in the workforce who expect immediate success without working for their achievements or taking responsibility for their failures. The media regularly report on children who commit atrocities on classmates, teachers, and parents. The perennial moralistic approach of condemning and punishing misdeeds has not eliminated these problems. Neither has the permissive approach that says, let them express themselves, we don't want to inhibit our children. The only true solution is to ensure that the inherent natural capacity for contact and responsibility remains alive from birth onward. Mankind's move towards natural functioning will have to be a gradual process. Parents of each successive generation will need to make better emotional contact with their offspring so that they can raise less armored infants and children, thereby ensuring an increasing capacity for natural self-regulation. Every baby is born sweet and guileless. There are no evil babies except in twisted adult minds as reflected in horror novels and movies. Michel Audin, a French obstetrician who has been a pioneer and advocate of many aspects of natural childbirth, has reported extensively that babies can be in excellent contact if they are not traumatized at birth or sedated with mother's anesthesia. He makes the point that nearly every culture interferes with the vital contact between mother and infant at the time of birth. Anna Patsuru describes how even in the first hours of life, an infant is able to take charge of its own needs far more than is usually thought. Babies are able to instinctively find the breast, suckle, and regulate themselves. We are all born with instincts which, if unimpeded, allow us to develop responsibility for meeting our own needs. This natural, inherent capacity for genuine self-regulation is the prerequisite for rational social action. To a great extent, humans have lost this capacity. What accounts for this? In a word, armoring. Dale Rosen describes some of the effects of armoring and the value of preventing its formation. Armoring turns the sweet innocence of babies into harshness, leaves them deadened, and interferes with the natural capacity for self-regulation. When children are armored, we cannot let them do whatever they want and hope they will be able to regulate themselves. They cannot. We must do our best to prevent the development of chronic armor and limit neurotic behavior when it manifests. I assume most of you are reading this article because you believe in the importance of raising healthy children. Some of you undoubtedly hope to apply what you read in raising your own children. This, however, is not my purpose. I cannot, nor should I even try to tell you what you should do. To do so would establish a new moralism, an organomic moralism, another abstract rule defining good parent or bad parent. We will return later to the problem of moralism. What can be helpful is a discussion about emotional, energetic contact between parents and their children and how this impacts the child's development from infancy onward. In an article such as this, I can offer some general principles about child-rearing and self-regulation, but you need to be cautious in applying them. To proceed from intellectual knowledge alone will only add further complications. If you are faced with problems with your child, the best advice is to see an organomist for an evaluation of yourself and your child. A central theme in understanding and working with infants and children is contact. By contact, we mean organotic contact, that is, an energy contact, 
an energetic interaction with excitation, we can distinguish three realms of contact, with oneself, with others, and with the environment. Contact with oneself implies that we accurately perceive the emotions and sensations that result from movement of the biologic energy within ourselves. To the extent we are in contact, we feel intensely. With pleasurable excitement, the energy rushes outward to the skin, which may be experienced in various ways, such as a feeling of inner swelling of the chest, warmth in the abdomen, or sexual sensation in the genital. When we experience love, our heart overflows. In response to a real or perceived threat, the energy contracts into our core and we feel fear. Our heart beats faster and our gastrointestinal tract reacts with increased movement or spasm. With anger, the energy charges our muscles. These observations about our emotions support our understanding that contact occurs with spontaneous energy movement and is optimal when the excitation of the energy and its accurate perception are integrated. With regard to contact between two individuals, one is the excitant and the other the percipient. In the social realm, with contact, there is energy movement back and forth between people. When we interact with someone, we perceive the energy excitation in them and are excited in turn. While it may involve verbal, physical, or eye contact, the basis of such a connection is much deeper than these surface interactions. It comes from energetic contact. When we feel connected with someone in this way, the energy movement may originate from our core and extend out beyond our skin surface. We talk of being on the same wavelength, having good vibes, or being in sync. When we are emotionally touched by another, we are moved spontaneously. This is not always in a positive way. There are some individuals whom we immediately dislike, never having met or talked to them before. An increasing number of scientists are exploring the interactions between infant and parent. In 1974, Condon and Saunders published an article in Science in which they showed that infants as young as one day of age respond with limb movements that precisely correspond to the flow of the speech of the adults talking to them. T. Barry Brazelton at the Harvard Medical School has extensively studied interactions between infants and parents. In a case study involving simultaneous filming, these interactions are demonstrated. A several-months-old infant named Cece looks with wonder as her mother, Martha, talks and smiles at her. Cece then smiles in return and looks away and back. In Brazelton's words, Cece and Martha have learned about give and take, about rhythms. Cece has learned how to keep her mother coming by waiting to respond. She has learned to protect herself from too much overload. Most important, Cece has learned to blow her mother out of her chair with her bright smile. Split-screen films such as these vividly show what we mean by contact. The film also shows, as pointed out by Brazelton, that the baby interacts with her mother and father quite differently. With the latter, she is coy and partially hides her face under the corner of her outfit. She also makes loud sounds in response to his talking. In Brazelton's words, Cece already expects something very different from her father. She expects to play with him. She has an entirely different rhythm and body language which she saves for her father. Contact is essential for the child to develop the capacity to regulate her own behavior. Split-screen films show the infant learning how to regulate herself and to express herself, and to hold back when needed. Brazelton refers to this as the ability to regulate her own behavior to avoid being overwhelmed. 
Her coyness with her father, a form of holding back, actually gets him more involved. The capacity to modulate between expression and restraint allows the individual to be socially appropriate in his or her expression and to act differently with different people. Traditionally, the capacity for restraint is referred to as the ability to delay gratification, a mechanistic view that fails to capture the essence. The capacity to contain an impulse allows the individual to build a greater charge and then, in its discharge, experience more satisfaction. When one is in contact, there is a delicate balance between expression and restraint that allows the individual to maximize satisfaction and the effectiveness of his actions. At times, it is even essential for survival. This is well illustrated among predators in the animal kingdom, where rushing after prey too quickly can leave the predator hungry. In contrast, holding back until the right moment can bring a meal. There is a natural alternation between spontaneous expression and restraint. Alternating opposition also describes all pulsatory biologic functions. In a healthy organism, energy pulsates between the core and the periphery, allowing the individual to satisfy core needs. These processes of pulsation and satisfaction are the basis of an internal biological self-regulation. But the young do not grow up in a vacuum. An infant develops in the environment of his family, and his family is the product of the culture. We function in an environment that requires an ability to develop social self-regulation. Self-regulation in the biological and the social realms are intimately interrelated. In contrast to other animals, something has gone terribly awry with most humans. The balance of the natural swing between expression and restraint has been upset, and pulsation fails to occur in a natural, life-positive way. We see people restrain themselves when they need to be expressive or, conversely, express themselves when they need to show restraint. Virtually all of humanity has become armored and cut off from, out of contact with, their natural core instincts. This has been true for thousands of years. How and why this happened is forever lost in the mists of prehistory, but it is valuable to see how the process is perpetuated. If parents are unable to come in touch with and tolerate their core feelings and impulses, they will be unable to make contact with their child. In fact, because of their intolerance, they will react inappropriately when their child has such feelings. The infant senses a change of or loss of contact, experiences anxiety, and instinctively alters his reactions in order to maintain whatever contact is possible with the parent. In Brazelton's study, he asked the mother to use an unresponsive face with her daughter. The infant reacts by looking away with anxiety in her eyes. She then looks back at her mother with disbelief and arches her back. As noted by Brazelton, Cece tries about five different behavioral programs to get her mom to come back. She can't believe Martha won't respond. No child tolerates the loss of contact, the loss of love, and in order to survive, every infant does what it must to maintain whatever limited level of contact is possible. Unable to excite her mother and without a response, the baby has no way to make contact and share or discharge her feelings and their very real energy. When this becomes a chronic condition between mother and infant, where contact and other basic primary needs are frustrated, there can be no resolution of the baby's anxiety and frustration. When longing, the need for comfort, feelings of anger and sadness are not felt by the mother and not attended to, the child must reduce contact with such feelings to keep from being overwhelmed. 
This is done through disruption of energy movement. Energy movement and thus contact are reduced by reducing excitation and or blocking perception. To accomplish this, the child holds his breath, tightens his muscles, blocks in his brain, and goes off in the eyes so that his perceptions are not so painfully acute. This is a natural defense that is called armor. Armor protects the child from being overwhelmed, but when it becomes chronic, it is pathological with profound negative consequences. To the extent that an individual is armored, he cannot fully feel or express his natural emotions and impulses. This results in limitations in his capacity to self-regulate. The primary natural core impulses, including sweet ones of love, become blocked by layers of armor and turn harsh. These are the secondary impulses. In order to function in society, the child must develop a moral social facade to hold these secondary impulses in check. In the late 1920s, early in the history of organomic thinking, Wilhelm Reich made the distinction between moral regulation and self-regulation. The term self-regulation describes the natural capacity of the individual to govern himself according to inborn healthy biological needs. This contrasts with moral regulation, where the individual must be governed by externally determined rules of right and wrong. Moral regulation has been the prevailing mode of armored authoritarian human civilization for thousands of years. In the armored condition, natural pulsation between expression and restraint, as described before, becomes distorted. Because of armor, core expressions are transformed into secondary expressions and the restraint employed to control them becomes moral restraint. These no longer function as alternating opposites, but become antagonistic. For millennia, the predominant family structure, and with it the approach to parenting, has been authoritarian. In such a family, the parent asserts authority and decides what is right and wrong with little regard for the feelings or genuine needs of the child. You have to do it because I am your parent and I tell you what is right. In the second half of this century, we have seen a counter-reaction to this approach. Most people born before 1960 were raised by authoritarian parents, but since that time we have increasingly seen permissive parenting and a permissive family structure. The permissive parents of today were often themselves raised in an authoritarian way and experienced the negative consequences of that upbringing. With the best of intentions, they have decided they want to do or be something different for their children. They hated being told what to do and want to let their children express themselves more freely and have more say in their lives. These parents are reacting against their upbringing. Armored themselves and lacking core contact, they are no more able to raise their children in a healthy way than were their parents. To the extent to which a parent is armored, he will be incapable of making contact with his own core and therefore with the core needs of his child. He is biophysically limited in his ability to relate to his child. The armor prevents direct contact with his core and prevents direct contact with the outside world. Without his deepest need for contact meant, the child of this new generation must armor and, as a consequence, develops a wide range of harsh secondary expressions. These include being whiny, bratty, pushy, mean, sneaky, arrogant, contemptuous, and so forth. And because he is not disciplined by his parents, he continues these behaviors not only at home, but also more readily in his social behavior outside the home. 
When these secondary behaviors manifest, it is disastrous to allow the child to do what he wants, and it is the parent's obligation to point them out and stop them. To the extent that the child is armored, he is not able to function appropriately without moral rules of conduct and is incapable of regulating himself. Because of this, permissiveness has not only not improved family life or society, but has instead brought about chaos. Authoritarian and permissive parenting are the two basic types of armored child-rearing. The impulsive character manifests in conditions in which both of these parenting approaches are overtly manifest. Each results from a different relationship between moral restraint and secondary expression. In the authoritarian approach, moral restraint holds back secondary neurotic expression and is predominant. The opposite is true in the permissive approach, with secondary neurotic expression dominant over moral restraint. Because there is no rational basis for expression of secondary layer impulses, we can see that the authoritarian approach is actually the more rational of the two. Both types of neurotic parenting result from parents' armoring and their reactions to secondary layer impulses. Both fail to distinguish primary from secondary impulses. The authoritarian inhibits both primary and secondary impulses, and the permissive allows expression of secondary impulses. Another way of seeing this, the authoritarian parent indulges his own secondary neurotic expressions, while the permissive parent indulges the child's secondary neurotic expressions. The permissive parent often obtains neurotic gratification from their child's and their own anti-authoritarian actions because they are motivated by hatred of their authoritarian father and are compelled to rebel against anyone seen as in authority, boss, teacher, government. The authoritarian, on the other hand, identifies with the father figure. Self-regulatory upbringing is not a third alternative to these two armored approaches. It is an entirely different domain, one that is governed by and results from spontaneous natural contact. Unfortunately, the principle of self-regulation has suffered the fate of many great concepts. It has been distorted, applied in a mechanical way, and taken to mean that we have to let the child regulate himself without our intervention. If it weren't so tragic, it would be funny. A two-year-old child regulating himself. Such an ideological approach to self-regulation has become permissiveness in the name of health. More than 40 years ago, Reich clearly described these problems and foresaw where we were heading. He wrote in Children of the Future, Now, the greatest difficulty in letting newborn infants develop their natural morality is the fact that armoring sets in so very early, i.e., soon after birth. With the first armor blocking, the infant's self-regulatory powers begin to wane. They become steadily weaker as the armoring spreads over the whole organism and they must be replaced by compulsive moral principles if the child is to exist and survive in its given environment. Thus, the compulsive regulation of infants is not the result of bad intentions or maliciousness on the part of educators or parents. It is an awful necessity, an emergency measure. Self-regulation cannot be conceived of as something to be implanted in the child or something that can be taught. It can only grow of its own accord. What the educator and the parents can do is protect this naturally occurring self-regulation from birth onward. Since every bit of chronic armoring only weakens the functioning of self-regulation and makes compulsive training necessary, the adult's main objective is the continuation and careful removal of every type of armoring that may appear in the infant. 
Reich also stated, Neurotic behavior cannot be dealt with by means of self-regulation. It forces authoritarian measures. The following case illustrates many of these points. Alice was brought to therapy as a toddler when the mother noticed her lightly hitting her own face and quietly saying, No. This scared the mother because she knew her own tendency to turn on herself emotionally, and here Alice was literally doing so. Both the mother and father felt strongly that they did not want Alice to suffer the same they had growing up, but now their own problems were appearing in their young daughter despite their best intentions. Although the specifics of their lives are unique to them, this couple wanted what most of us want for our children, for them to be better off than we are. In this case, both parents were well-educated, intelligent people who had also some knowledge of organomic principles and concepts to help guide them. Knowledge and good intentions, however, are not enough to prevent parents' problems from being visited on their children. As the mother said, the excitement about the idea of having a child was one thing, but once confronted with the reality of a living person right there, with feelings, it was far more difficult than we ever could have imagined. The father was a home-based freelance writer not yet able to earn an adequate income. The mother, a physician and the primary source of income for the family, felt guilty that she could not be with her daughter as much as she wanted. Although she struggled to juggle attempts to have time at home with her professional commitments, she was often exhausted and unable to make good contact with Alice. This made her feel even more guilty. On initial examination, Alice was a sensitive, intense child who also needed a lot of contact. She had some holding in her jaw and was unable to express angry crying. My holding her jaw open brought out the angry crying. Although she tried to squirm away, she did discharge some anger and underlying sadness. When Alice began to express angry crying in the session, both parents became uncomfortable. In response to Alice's anger, her mother felt afraid and guilty that she must have done something wrong. She tried to distract Alice's attention to something pleasant. The father showed little outward reaction and instead withdrew into himself. Both parents were encouraged to continue working on their personal emotional problems in their ongoing individual therapies. The mother subsequently reported that she saw clearly how her own trouble tolerating her feelings, especially disappointment and anger, caused her to feel overwhelmed in response to those feelings in her daughter, and how her consequent confusion prevented her from responding to Alice in a clear, straightforward manner. When Alice was able to discharge some anger and sadness in her sessions, she expanded and became livelier and happier. This helped ease the block between mother and child because Alice was now less demanding and more enjoyable to be with. In turn, the mother relaxed and felt less afraid she was doing the wrong thing. Overall, they made better contact. Well past the age of two, Alice continued to nurse. The mother said she had heard some people say that a child weans itself when ready. So far, she had not seen signs of her daughter weaning herself. She said that over the past couple of months, she felt less and less like nursing and in fact wanted to stop, but felt afraid to do so because it might be the wrong thing if her daughter still needed to nurse. Breastfeeding, however, now felt like an imposition, a burden, and she was beginning to resent her daughter, which made her feel guilty. A sticky relationship had developed between the two. When asked what she felt in her heart, she said she would like to tell her daughter that she did not want to nurse anymore. Some important issues are illustrated by this situation. 
The mother did not act on her feelings. She rejected them, became confused, and was paralyzed with the fear that what she wanted to do might be wrong. I suggested she follow her feelings, but also acknowledged that she might need help to face what was in the way of her doing so. She was clearly aware of feeling afraid that she might stop nursing and that her daughter might still need it. I told her she could always change her mind later. She worried that if she did so, it would be confusing to Alice. I told her that continuing to nurse when she did not want to was far more confusing to Alice than if she stopped, subsequently changed her mind, and went back to it, knowing at the time that it was the right thing to do. The main issue, however, was that she was afraid to face her daughter's disappointment and anger if she did not give in to her demand to nurse. Mother returned two weeks later and said, I told my daughter there would be no more nursing and that was it. She just stopped and hasn't asked to nurse again since. She started eating other foods and she's been much more talkative and more independent. The funny thing is, is that I got the impression she was relieved. This is exactly right. Once the mother overcame her anxieties enough to act decisively on what she felt, the stickiness in the relationship disappeared. Alice reacted to being told breastfeeding would stop by expanding and reaching out in a more independent way. Alice's true need at this point in her development was to have contact with her mother as a more independent child. The mother no longer resented Alice and actually enjoyed being with her much more of the time. The contact between them was more satisfying for both. In another situation, a five-year-old girl continued to nurse. The mother rationalized this by saying that her daughter still wanted to have the breast and seemed to enjoy it and that she, herself, believed that a child will wean itself when it is ready. The father reported to me that since he and the mother separated when the daughter was two years old, the mother had not found a satisfying adult relationship for herself. He felt the mother used nursing to satisfy her own need for contact and rationalized it as a good thing. He was right. It is interesting to note that the child, now in her teens, has a sticky relationship with her mother and tends to wait for others to initiate many day-to-day -day interactions with her. Jane Goodall's detailed observations and research of chimpanzees and their family relationships document the profound effects of failing to wean a child. The top-ranking female that Goodall named Flo was observed to be a particularly kind, loving, and tolerant mother. Her older offspring all did well and were very successful in the community. Her sons tended to be high-ranking, and her daughters were sought after as mates and did well in raising their young. When she was pregnant with her fifth, Flo increased her attempts to wean her four-year-old son, Flint. But typical of youngsters of his age, he resisted. He still tried to suckle and demanded to ride on Flo like an infant despite his large size. When denied, Flint threw violent temper tantrums, screaming, hitting, and biting his mother. Perhaps because she was getting too old to stand up to him, Flo often gave in and let Flint have his way. Flo then gave birth to Flame. With the arrival of a sibling, a time when most young chimps had been observed to become more independent, Flint's behavior should have changed. Instead, he kept pestering his mother for even more attention, trying to suckle with flame at Flo's breast. More often than not, Flo gave in to his demands. Six months later, while Flo was ill, Flame disappeared, evidently having died. With no infant to care for, Flo gave up trying to wean Flint or encourage his independence, even though he was over four years of age. At this time, Flo was estimated to be well past 40, near the life expectancy of a wild chimpanzee.
Feeble and worn, she now spent most of her time resting quietly. With Flo's death, Flint stayed by himself close to the place where she had died. He ate very little and became increasingly lethargic and depressed. In this state of grieving, Flint grew sick and three and a half weeks after losing his mother, he also died. Flo lacked the energy to react appropriately to Flint and encourage his independence as she had with her first three offspring. This had grave consequences for him. So, even the best of mothers can have problems, in this case advanced maternal age and a baby's death, that profoundly affect the delicate balance of interactions and contact between mother and child. When normal healthy interactions are disturbed, this profoundly impacts the offspring's capacity for self-regulation and even survival. Let's return to the story of Alice. The problems that arise from a disturbance of contact can manifest during each stage of development. A few months after the resolution of the weaning problem, Alice's parents became concerned because she was refusing to let them change her soiled diaper. She had begun to use the potty, and although not fully toilet-trained, she had now regressed. Both parents felt they should use force to change her, but felt helpless and became paralyzed in the face of her angry stubbornness. As a result of their tentative approach, diaper changing became a long, drawn-out affair in which they tried to reason with her and cajole her until eventually she gave in and let them do it. Neither one doubted that Alice's reaction was neurotic or that their own response was as well, but they were also uncertain what to do with her. They suspected that Alice was clinging to being a baby. The father, in particular, who was home with her more, was more comfortable relating to her as a baby. Again, the child's sensitivity made her very aware of her parents' reactions, and I sense she reacted to their discomfort about her becoming more mature and independent. While both parents were anxious in the face of Alice's intense reactions, they were now more able to tolerate her emotions and primarily needed encouragement to be clear and direct with her. Subsequently, the mother said that she was well aware that she often became paralyzed with the fear that she would act on a decision and it would be wrong. The mother felt that neither she nor her husband grew up with any rational model of how to handle children. In her paralysis, she was often unable to see her options. Advice often served to give them a simple, rational model of what they could do. In this situation, they were told that a soiled diaper simply needed to be changed, without debate or discussion. They were also told that the health of their child would result in her respecting them for standing up to her neurotic reactions and hating them if they didn't. They were encouraged to simply take charge of the situation and without rancor tell Alice that they were going to change her diaper and proceed to do so even if it required holding her down. They were also told that Alice did not have to like what they were doing. It was important for her to express her anger without them tiptoeing around it. By now they had seen me hold and contain Alice on the treatment couch many times when she wanted to squirm away, and they had also seen her rage and get through it with relief. Immediately following the session, they realized Alice needed a diaper change and proceeded to do so in the waiting room. Through the door, I could hear Alice screaming. She was in an absolute rage and screamed bloody murder as if she were being killed. The rage needed to be discharged, but up to this point, because of the parents' indecisiveness, had no outlet except indirectly through stubbornness. In the next session, they said that there had been only one more diaper incident. After this, Alice was relieved, more expressive and independent. Part of the rage of a child in a permissive setting is rational and is directed at the parents for not taking care of the child by taking charge of the situation. 
Both parents have worked hard in individual therapy and are better able to tolerate their own emotions. Continued work with the parents on their relationship and how they relate to their child has made them much more able to respond appropriately. Currently, Alice is seen for therapy every few months when she asks for it or her parents feel that she has gotten stuck. A recurrent problem is her reluctance to feel and express anger. She avoids it with a tendency to be overly obedient and to retreat into a helpless, whining, poor-me attitude. Rather than getting caught up in the content of Alice's whining, the parents can now usually tell her to stop whining and speak up. When they do this, she immediately becomes more animated and communicates her needs directly. In general, Alice is now doing well and has become a delightful six-year-old, well-liked by classmates and adults. People remark that she is particularly sensitive, caring, and expressive, but strong at the same time. From the beginning of Alice's treatment, the mother felt that she must be a bad mother because her daughter had problems and needed therapy. Recently, she said that she could increasingly hear what she was told so many times, that she did the best she could, and when she could not see what else to do, she sought help for her daughter. Getting her daughter into therapy was an indication of her being a good mother rather than a bad one. Where does all the rage come from when a child is allowed to act out neurotic impulses? The irony is that in doing what the child wants, the permissive approach overlooks the deeper needs of the child. Indulging the child's secondary neurotic impulses gives only superficial satisfaction and actually prevents the spontaneous development and expression of the deeper, healthy, primary ones. The primary impulses, therefore, are in great measure frustrated, hence the rage. Often, the parent has the instinct to say no, but overrides it, feeling guilty. This is common with permissive parenting. One of the recurrent distortions of the concept of self-regulation is the idea that a child should not be thwarted and told no. Reich himself was aware of this, as revealed in unpublished notes made by Myron Sharoff of one of Reich's last seminars in August 1955. One of the seminar members reported seeing many examples of so-called self-regulated infants, where the mother had become exhausted. She was continually being awakened at night to meet the child's demand for contact. From Sharoff's notes, Wilhelm Reich made the point that, while the first few months of the infant's life are hard on the mother, when this continues on into years, there is very often something pathological in the situation. Some of the pathology he had noted, it is actually the mother's needs rather than the infant's that are being met by this constant contact. The mother is seeking the warmth, not the infant. Or the mother is very ambitious and wants to show that she has an extremely self-regulated child and is very giving to it. Perhaps the most outstanding factor that was mentioned was that the infant feels deprived of genuine contact and hence is constantly demanding something, no matter how much the mother tries to give to it. A vicious circle is then established with the mother feeling more and more resentment because of the child's demands and the child feeling more and more unfulfilled in the something it is seeking and hence becomes more demanding. Reich stressed the obvious but often forgotten point that the child needs to learn no's, that no's are part of reality, and that if he doesn't learn them when he is young, he will never learn them. Reich never felt that no's should be excluded, but only anti-life, hateful, irrational no's. Another case well illustrates parents' confusion about when to say no and what to say no to. When Anne was four years old, her parents asked that she be seen in consultation. 
They expressed concern that she had become sexually provocative with her father, occasionally rubbing her genital against him while he was sitting on the sofa. She had also recently become agitated and easily distractible. Both parents were quite uncomfortable with Anne's sexual behavior, but were reluctant to stop it because, wanting to raise a healthy child, they did not want to repress her sexually. Through discussion, it became clear that, in general, Anne failed to make eye contact and asked directly when she wanted her father's attention. Anne had been previously seen at age two and a half for routine evaluation. At that time, she was noted to be lively, but with some oral holding and a subtle tendency to go off in her eyes. Until the problem with her sexually provocative behavior, she was seen about every four to six months to help prevent armoring. In response to her sexual behavior, Anne's father tried to act as if everything was fine, but in fact it made him intensely uncomfortable. She certainly sensed this. The father was urged to gently tell Anne to stop rubbing against him and to tell her to make eye contact. The parents were reassured that this gentle suppression of her genital impulses was necessary. When the father handled Anne's sexual behavior in this way, it quickly stopped. She calmed down and became more focused in general and was able to look at her father and engage him in a range of everyday play activities by saying, Watch me do this, Daddy. Anne's inability to make eye contact and to speak up for herself needed to be addressed first. Allowing expression of genital impulses before doing so rendered her anxious and unfocused. In this case, genital suppression, which might be seen as wrong, was necessary to help the child integrate and support the long-term development of her sexuality without genital fixation on her father. If Anne was well integrated and had an appropriate sexual outlet with a peer, she would not have directed her sexual feelings to her father. Failing this, however, it was necessary to stop the behavior. Virtually all families are neurotic and therefore family relationships are sticky. Individuals within them are not able to function freely and independently. In fact, natural independence is thwarted. The child's ties with the parents become burdened with the excess energy of unexpressed feelings and unfulfilled needs. Reich coined the term familitis to describe this condition in which family members are neurotically bound together. It is wonderfully descriptive and accurately conveys the overcharge and overexcitation, the inflammation, of family ties. Rigidity is always found in the armored state. Healthy parenting, however, requires flexibility. For example, as an infant, the child needs intense close contact with the mother, but as it develops, it needs to become more independent. This is true among all mammalian species. Well illustrated in a National Geographic television special on Kodiak bears, the close bond between mother and her cubs forms an inseparable family unit for two to three years. Then she becomes progressively less attentive, eventually turning on and driving away her two-year-old cub when it was time for it to be on its own. Seeing natural functioning through the lens of armored human attitudes causes many people to regard the mother bear's abandonment of her cub as brutal. Perhaps it is harsh, but is it brutal for the mother to force her young to become independent? Is the cub afraid and confused? Undoubtedly afraid, confused maybe, but it is not brutal to have a cub face age-appropriate fears and in doing so grow strong and independent. An authoritarian could easily take the example of the bears and say, See, you have to make children independent. 
Toughen them up and don't let them become dependent on you because they will have to be made ready to leave. This is an armored attitude that, when applied at too young an age, avoids, denies, and squelches soft feelings of natural dependency and need. A child cannot become independent if its early needs for dependence are not met. The film's narrator describes the natural situation quite clearly. The mother maintains a close connection with the young and they are dependent upon her when there is a biological need. But with maturation, there develops the necessity to become independent and she asserts it for her young. Otherwise, they will not be able to survive on their own in the wild. People with a permissive attitude might feel sorry for the cub, not appreciating that the mother is forcing independence on her offspring and that this is the correct thing to do. The authoritarian treats the infant harshly, and the permissive coddles and treats the child sentimentally, as fragile and helpless. A striking example of the authoritarian attitude occurred after my own daughter was born. On day two, with mother and baby still in the hospital, a nurse came to the room and said the baby needed to be taken to the nursery to be weighed and to have a routine footprint done. She went to put her in the bassinet to wheel her down the hall. I said I would carry her myself, and the nurse said, Oh, you're going to spoil her. When we arrived at the nursery, several other nurses said the same thing, one adding, At some point she's going to have to get used to her daddy not carrying her everywhere. Can you tell me how it is possible to spoil a two-day-old infant by carrying her, holding her close, and comforting her? On the other hand, Anna Pozzaro's discussion of delivery self-attachment shows that trying to do too much for the infant can interfere with and interrupt natural functioning. Assisting a newborn to the mother's nipple to nurse actually interferes with the infant's instinctual ability to crawl to the breast on its own. Sometimes the parent needs to teach the young. Other times, however, they must let them learn on their own, and the parent's role is to prevent anything from interfering. This is well illustrated in the interactions between a mother cheetah and her adolescent cubs, as seen in an episode of the Nature series shown on public television. The mother of two adolescent cheetahs sees a young Thompson's gazelle. Her cubs play instead of scouting for prey, but finally they catch on and stalk the fawn, which instinctively freezes and lays low. While the cubs know how to stalk, they do not yet know how to kill. They wander around the fawn lying on the ground, sit down next to it, paw at it, and seem to play with it for a while. Their mother does not interfere. She gives them more time to learn by experience when she chases off a hyena threatening to interfere. With the added time, the cubs eventually make the kill together. Examples in nature, where there is apparently no significant chronic armoring, show us the process of parenting when there is natural contact with offspring. As humans, our armor unfortunately prevents us from making the kind of contact required to instinctively care for our young as fully as they need. The possibility of preventing armor and the difficulties of developing a healthy approach to child-rearing were described by Wilhelm Reich nearly 50 years ago in Children of the Future. Those who operate with thou shalt and thou shalt not somehow have no inkling of the inborn moral behavior in man. The organomic principle of self-regulation relies fully on the natural structure of the newborn infant, and with good reason. If you let your child grow as nature has created it, if you do not warp its basic needs into anti-natural asocial drives, the so-called secondary drives, then no compulsive suppression of badness will be necessary. Don't suppress nature in the first place. 
then no antisocial drives will be created and no compulsion will be required to suppress them. What you so desperately and vainly try to achieve by way of compulsion and admonition is there in the newborn infant ready to live and function. Let it grow as nature requires and change your institutions accordingly. I come across permissive parenting routinely in working with parents, and often the work of a child psychiatrist is encouraging in helping parents set limits for their child, which is something that would have been unheard of in prior generations. I found the most success with parents that have a gut sense of their need to be the authority, but have become cut off from it temporarily, or confused or distracted by the permissive anything goes culture of today. How do you like listening to an audio version of an article from the Journal of Ergonomy? Would you like to hear more? Let us know. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. I hope you share this podcast with your friends and family and let them know about our work. You can connect with us at ergonomy.org. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Ergonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical orgone therapy, as practiced by the physicians at the ACO, offers a way forward, often without the use of medication. Music